Ons staan achter Sierraads woonstelle en welgevonden landgoed. Kijk maar van mij, aan wat ik net bedoel. Hoe weet jij iemand dat is van boer? Waar staan we dat van boer? Ik moet van die passaal op. Ja? Op achternaam. Hoe achternaam? Waar zie je ook? Ja. That was the voice of Werner Carolus, a young, slightly built man with peroxided hair. In video footage, shot by police investigators in 2005, he's pointing out the flat of Inga Lotz. The investigating officer asks him in Afrikaans how he knows there was a murder. His response is chilling. I know because I was there. In this episode of The Ingelot's Story, A Miscarriage of Justice, co-producer Matthew Brown and myself, Catherine Rice, investigate who Werner Carolus was and why his confession that he was involved in Inga's murder was ultimately rejected. Just days after Inga was found dead in her apartment, savagely beaten and stabbed to death, 17-year-old Werner Carolus apparently bragged to some friends that he had killed her. But when he heard that Stellenbosch police wanted to question him, he fled to Springbok in the Northern Cape. There he broke down and allegedly told his aunt he had been involved in the murder. Two weeks later, police arrived and found him hiding in a cupboard. He was crying and told them, I didn't kill her. Werner Carolus was taken back to Cape Town and handed over to the Stellenbosch police. From there, he was taken to the crime scene to see if he could reconstruct what had happened. In the video footage of his confession, he names five other people he says were with him. This was of a young man confessing to involvement in Inga's murder. He takes the police officers to the scene of the crime and talks about how his friends had broken into the flat and how the murder had been committed. The man in the video is Werner Carolus, who has been in and out of prison all his life. He's part of um, the kind of gang culture in, in Stellenbosch, um, is a self-confessed tick user, methamphetamine user um, and dealer. And from then on, his story changes each time he tells it. Author Anthony Altbecker says Werner's story was riddled with inconsistencies, but he did manage to direct police to the complex and create a sketch plan of the inside of Enger's apartment. In the video, he tells police he was there and saw Enger lying dead on her couch as his friends ran away. Was there? He also says he was high on drugs, methamphetamine, commonly known as tuk. It's hard to decide which parts of his story to believe, if any. At that point, the police officers recording his statements did not know that Fred van der Feyfer's fingerprint had supposedly just been matched to the DVD Inga had rented. The police interviewing Werner thought they had made a real breakthrough. This was a confession that was on camera. It was made in the presence of the police. It was buttressed by two signed confessions um, that he'd made to other police officers elsewhere. 
Um, but the defence had not been made privy to it. Altbecker says this development did not align with the theory of the Engelotz investigation team from the Serious and Violent Crimes Unit. Their hypothesis was that someone close to Enger had killed her, and they only had one suspect. That the Stellenbosch police had found Werner Carolus and gotten his confession was not seen by the Serious Violent Crimes Unit as very helpful. This must have been very disturbing news for them. I think probably at the time they believed wholeheartedly that Fred was a murderer and that this was in fact a nuisance and a distraction and likely to undermine their case against Fred. And they were prepared to go all out to make sure that this problem for their investigation went away. From his holding cell, Werner recanted his confession. Some months later, he signed a sworn statement saying that the reason he recanted his confession was that the heads of the investigation, the heads from the Serious Violent Crimes Unit, had come to visit him and told him that they would make his life very difficult if he continued to confuse their investigation and that they would drop charges of car theft that he was facing um, if he would recant his original confession. News24 has copies of this sworn statement. We've also looked at his criminal records. By 2005, he had a total of 29 housebreaking charges against him and a handful of other infringements. In fact, just five days after Inga's murder, Werner broke into an apartment five kilometers away from hers. He left his fingerprints at the scene and eventually was sentenced to two years in prison for that crime. The criminal records also show that the charge of motor vehicle theft from that same month was indeed withdrawn. That was the last time Werner Corellis's name would crop up, until several years later. Meanwhile, the trial against Fred went ahead. For the majority of the trial, despite the defence's best efforts, it appeared that the judge was certain to convict Fred. It was only when the defence brought in their international experts that things started looking up for Fred. FBI shoeprint expert Bill Bodziak had always said he wouldn't come to South Africa to testify, but when he got wind of the fact that Captain Bruce Bartholomew had misrepresented his opinion, he was furious. I was requested to come to South Africa to testify on behalf of the defence. First and foremost, because I disagreed with the opinion of Bruce Bartholomew. I did not believe this was even a shoe impression. It was simply a blood mark that had no characteristics, class or otherwise, of the shoes of Fred Vanderweifer or of anyone's shoes that I could see. But also now, my testimony was even more important because I, I had to go defend my name and reputation uh, and contradict the lies that Bruce Bartholomew apparently told about my conversations with him. There's no way that he could have returned and misunderstood my opinion. If he testified under oath in court and he stated that I agreed with his conclusion, then absolutely it was perjury. There's no ifs or buts about it. Defence lawyer Terry Price says Bodziak's testimony was a turning point for Fred's case. 
the state informed us that they were not going to call Bozier. Uh, they made some excuse about he didn't want to come and testify, but if you look at the letters written by the South African police to Bozier, they told him it's not necessary for him to come and testify. And they didn't want him here, quite obviously. We knew before Bartholomew testified that what he said about Bill Boziak were lies. Because we phoned Bill Boziak. We didn't calculate the time differences very well. I think we woke Bill up in the early hours of the morning. And of course he wasn't too impressed with that. But when he heard what we had to say, he was livid. He was exceptionally angry. Because yeah, he's a man widely considered to be the best football expert in the world. I mean, he's written books about it. He testified in the O.J. Simpson trial. He's tops. And lies have been told about him in a South African court. Bill Bodziak very kindly came to South Africa and simply destroyed the state case. I remember Bill saying to us afterwards that when Karin Tennyson got up to cross-examine him, he could see the fear in her eyes. Yet Judge Dion Fancel did not seem entirely convinced just yet. That would take Fred himself taking the stand. Although initially the defense were not going to call him, they realized the judge wanted to hear Fred's alibi in his own words. By then, Fred had lost a great deal of weight and was exhausted. But this would be his final opportunity to sway the judge and clear his name. I guess to some extent my feelings and emotions about what I experienced had to take somewhat of a backseat. We were, we were in a fight and in a battle. And so the judge would finally hear testimony from Fred himself. Only after the decision not to testify I experienced some, some negative comments um, from, from the public in a sense that why are you not testifying? Maybe they didn't necessarily understand that there was nothing really that I could add to my defence. But then at our final argument there were a few comments made by the judge um, and in debate between him and my advocate that clearly showed me that all is not well <laughs> and all is not as I thought it was. So that's when I felt the need, well, if he wants to hear me, then obviously there's no need why I'm not prepared to tell him whatever he wants to know. So it was, in a way, a, a desperate step to take, to say, well, I'll rather testify and take some humiliation in the media and some pressure from, uh, from, from cross-examination from the state advocate than spend the rest of my life in prison. It was very, very stressful. Even though I was completely open and forward about the situation, I was aware of the fact that I was going to be tricked into certain trick questions and, and, and tried to be deceived in a way. So if I made a mistake in the witness box, it could have cost me my life. On the 29th of November 2007, the judge delivered his verdict. Altbecker says the atmosphere in the courtroom was electric. It felt unbelievably tense that morning. After three weeks of deliberations, Judge Dion Fonsell took several excruciating hours to deliver his verdict. Just to have a moment compressed into, into a few hours, literally into a few minutes where that final judgment is read, determine the rest of your life was, was to me very, very stressful, obviously. Well, I guess there's always something in the back of your mind. It's, it's never over until the fat lady sings. You can only relax once that final sentence is read. So when the judge 
declared me innocent at that point in time, it was quite overwhelming. Um, again, there's a period of time that you can't really remember. I've seen on television now what actually happened. The moment, the first thing I realised again was that my advocate was giving me a hug, but I didn't realise he had to jump over two benches to get there. So that was again a, a, almost like a period of time that, that you went blank in a sense. And, Judge Dion Fonsell lambasted the police for incompetence, mistakes and untrustworthy testimony, singling out Bruce Bartholomew amongst several others. However, he did not go so far as to say they had fabricated or manipulated evidence. Fred's work colleague Nkuzeli Mbomvu, who was one of his alibi witnesses, was initially delighted. It, it was very exciting. Um... There was a sense of relief, but it, it, it quickly moved, to be quite honest, to a sense of anger. Because you now realize that uh, if you cannot trust the system, because you remember how the judge was kind of, I faced that judge <laughs> as well. He, he was very clear and very firm. Uh, he had very strong words uh, for the, for the, for the um, prosecution. And, 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 and clearly, he was also quite frustrated in terms of the lengths to which these guys have gone. So it was a sense of anger, to, to, be, to be quite honest. Fred's family had spent all of their life savings and more fighting to clear his name. They felt investigators had misread and manipulated evidence, committed perjury and knowingly and maliciously prosecuted their son. As the dust settled, they decided there should be a reckoning. In 2008, they sued the police in civil court for malicious prosecution. Three years later, they won, and Fred was awarded 46 million rand in damages. However, the state filed an application to appeal the judgment in the Supreme Court of Appeal. Fred's initial victory was subsequently overturned, and he would have to fork out yet more money to the state to cover their legal costs. The appeal court found that Fred failed to prove malicious intent on the part of the prosecution and some of the police officers investigating the murder. It was far more probable that mistakes were made, the court found, than a fraudulent scheme to implicate Fred. Fred's defense lawyer, Terry Price, says it was yet another cruel blow for the Fundafefa family. He has a man who everyone now knows is innocent. And thanks to a judgment in the Supreme Court of Appeal, an innocent man has to pay five million rand to the state in legal fees. It, it, to me, it, it's just destructive. And I think it's going to hurt Fred very badly, not only financially, but also it's going to seriously hurt him from an emotional point of view. In fact, I know it's hurt him. He says Fred lost a lot more than money. Fred has lost a girlfriend that he loved. He's lost a wife-to-be who is beautiful, exceptionally intelligent, and who, in my opinion, would have reached the very top of whatever um, career she chose. Fred is a type of guy, when you get to know him, that doesn't believe evil or malice in anyone. He simply is the type of person that does not believe that anyone is bad. He's lost that. No doubt he's lost that. And I think that in itself is tragic because a person with that kind of approach to mankind is a useful person to have in society.
I don't think Fred will ever recover from this. He's lost his innocence in many ways. The Lotz family will also never recover. The murderer of their only child remains a free man. Next, on the Engelot story, A Miscarriage of Justice. If some of the police officers really did try to frame an innocent man, we have to ask why. And if Fred van der Feyfer didn't kill Inga, then who did? I have no doubt that the police framed him. No doubt whatsoever. There's someone saying, yes, I did it. At least you'll interview the guy and sit down with him and uh, ask him a couple of questions. This episode was produced by Matthew Brown and Catherine Rice for News 24. Audio recording by Matt Gare, Craig Weinefeld, and Luke Peters. Music courtesy of Getty Images and Epidemic Sound. Multimedia editors Charlene Roert and Nokutula Maniati. News 24 editor and chief Adrian Besson. For other News 24 podcasts, visit our multimedia page where you can find Exodus. White Collar Heist and Missing Matthew. For more exclusive content, subscribe to news24.com.